Would you please pray with me real quick before I start? Uh, uh, Lord, thank you so much. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you better. Lord, we love your bride. Would you help us to love her better? Amen. So, fun thing about me, I think it's fun anyway, I love Star Wars. I've like always loved Star Wars. There's really not a time in my life I can recall where I, don't at, where I haven't absolutely loved Star Wars. Uh, I saw every movie by the time I was like five or six years old, and then you might be able to imagine me, little eight-year-old Ben, little teapot Ben, short and stout, very excited to go see Star Wars Episode Three in theaters for the first time. It was the best moment of my life up until that, up until that time. Uh, I remember walking out of the theater and it was around my birthday so I had a party, a whole Star Wars themed birthday party uh, and I had my friends over and I remember I had this like R2-D2 cake uh, and it was big and it was awesome and it was like just covered in fondant. The thing is like inedible. Uh, It was stale, it was disgusting, you could could not get a knife through it but it looked fantastic and I remember getting toys and getting like all these presents and stuff and like really that defined most of my childhood was like the Star Wars toys that I had. So like I had books and I had comics and I had action figures and I had Lego sets. Uh, I got like, you know, those plastic lightsabers you can get from the store. Uh, I, <laughs> I uh, went home over Christmas break and like I found them in my basement. We had just moved to a new house in like the last year and so our basement is basically just like a storage space and I found these like old lightsabers and like just out of habit, like without even thinking about it, I grabbed it and I went, like you have to make like this the lightsaber sound effect because that's just how it is. Like so, I love Star Wars so much. I always have loved it. So you can also imagine me as a 15 year old hearing the news that hey. Disney just bought the rights to Star Wars from George Lucas for a buku amount of money, and we're going to make a whole new trilogy with the original cast. Literally, high school wasn't great for me, but that was the best news that I heard in high school, and it carried me pretty far. <laughs> but now we're eight years after the fact. It's 2020. The trilogy is now concluded back in December, and I cannot express to you with enough words or with enough time how disappointed I am in those films. I do not like those movies, and I understand that a lot of you probably have differing opinions. Okay, there's some claps. That's good. But, but I know that some of you really like that mo- those movies, and that's fine. That's okay. I understand the premise of your opinion. The logic of it, I do not see. That's fine. But here's my point. I still love Star Wars. I still absolutely love Star Wars. It's full of fascinating characters, great planets, stories. It's full of adventure, and really, there's no end to it. It's just a vast universe uh, full of great potential. But no one likes to see the things they love become anything less than excellent. No one loves to see the things they treasure so deeply be anything less than absolutely awesome. And I think that's just a general principle. Like no parent like looks at their son and says, there's my subpar boy, very proud. You know, like no one looks at the things they love the most and think that's what, I, that's, I'm proud of that. I'm proud of that t- type of thing. I think in principle, the New Testament authors get this really well. No one likes to th- see the things that they love, the things they treasure be anything less than holy, be anything less than sanctified and set apart. And I think the New Testament authors, really, if you look at the New Testament, you look at the epistles specifically, half the time it's just kind of a critical, naggy grade report, or at least it reads that way sometimes. Uh, and so have you read 1 Corinthians by Paul? He opens up and he says, oh, I'm so thankful for you. I'm, so, I'm praying to, uh, that Jesus is like transforming your community. I'm so happy to hear about that. I'm writing to you because I love you. And then in chapter five, he's like, also, someone among you is in a relationship with a stepmom and that's disgusting and that's gotta stop. Like he, he's like so quick about like turning the attitude. He's like, stop causing divisions. You know, he's like, that's disgusting. Arrogant, arrogant pagans don't even do that. That's disgusting. Uh, if you've ever read Galatians, far less affectionate up front. He's pretty much upset the entire time. But Paul says, oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You're trading the gospel of salvation by grace through faith for this artifice, this fake gospel based on Jewish tradition and works. Why are you wasting your time with a false gospel? 
Have you read James? Uh, James is pretty much upset the whole time too. He's talking to, to Jewish uh, Christians in the diaspora and he says, why do you cause fights and quarrels among you? Like you covet, and, but you can't have and you want, so you steal and then you kill each other. Wouldn't it just be better to ask God for help instead? Ask God for the things you want? Wouldn't it just be better that way rather than causing divisions and causing problems? You're acting less than holy. You are operating in a, in a system that is less than sanctified, less than set apart. But no one, and I think this is an obvious statement, no one in the New Testament, I think, does this better than Jesus himself. Have you read the book of Revelation? To all you freshmen who are still afraid to open the book, we're gonna premise chapter one real quick. Uh, Revelation chapter one, John is on the island of Patmos and uh, he's exiled and then he just, Jesus appears before him and he looks incredible. Jesus looks absolutely awesome. He's got this uh, robe, he's got this sash, he's got slick back white hair, he's got fiery eyes and Bronze feet, I bet that's cool. And then he's got a sword that comes out of his mouth. He looks absolutely incredible. He's like a level 99 paladin with the best loot in the game. He looks absolutely fantastic. <laughs> Jesus looks so cool. And John, natural response, very understandable. He, he bows in fear, he, he cowers. But Jesus says, he holds, out, or he, says, he holds out his right hand to him and says, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys to death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. And John did it. I mean, we have the book of Revelation. He's like, he's writing these things down. He's like, no doubt, no problem. So now it's like Jesus and John are like hanging out again, just like old days, uh, except Jesus looks way different. Uh, but he looks awesome. And the rest of the letter is like a bonkers acid trip. Like it's, it's nuts. The rest of the book is just absolutely crazy. But we're going to start in chapter two here and we're going to read through these next seven letters uh, to these seven churches in Asia Minor. This is the first thing Jesus wants John to write are these seven letters to these seven churches. So to the church in Ephesus, we're going to jump around a few chunks of text. So I uh, hope you can follow along. I'll give you like the verse cues. Uh, chapter two to the church in Ephesus, verse two, he says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who have called themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Great job, Ephesus. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. To the church in Smyrna, chapter two, verse nine, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Not as aggressive, actually more so just a warning. Uh, to the church in Pergamum, he says, I know where you dwell, verse 13, sorry. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have this against you, a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. I do not want to be on the receiving end of that sword. To the church in Thyatira, verse 19, he says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works." 
Chapter three, verse uh, 1b says, it starts with, I know your works. To the church in Sardis, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Wake up, Sardis. To the church in Philadelphia, verse eight, he says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. A very kind letter. Kind of a calm before the storm. To the church in Laodicea. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Harsh words, but... He goes to say in the very next verse, verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. I may look at this as the thesis of these two chapters. The, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Please, whatever you do, first things first, don't think for a moment that Jesus' words of criticism uh, come from any kind of cynical or disinterested disposition towards his bride. That could not be further from the truth, no. Jesus is in love with his bride. And he loves her to the very end enough that he would go to the cross for her. He has found her to be worthy of his deepest affection, which is why this hurts so terribly for him. <sighs> Look, I don't know what your church experience is like in particular. I imagine most of you had a pretty uh, good experience with the church if you're here training to serve the church. <sighs> but I moved around a lot as a kid and I did have good experiences uh, in a lot of different communities. My dad was in the army though, so we moved to a different community of faith every few years and God was gracious to us in a lot of ways. But I remember uh, I lived in Georgia at the time, I was 12 years old uh, and I had a youth pastor who had been caught in a moral failure uh, at church in his office. Uh, and I didn't know much about that until about a month and a half afterward. Uh, and then he came back and confessed to the uh, student body, like to the students and then also to the parents. Uh, and that hurt enough. Uh, a man I deeply respected and trusted. Uh, and I had to deal with some of that pain. But at the same time, there was also a lot of pain in regards to how the church responded. No one was extending a hand, helping or healing. It was actually a lot of judgment, it was a lot of criticism, it was a lot of slander. I remember hearing just a lot of words from other students or from parents, and I was having a hard time extending grace because I didn't understand it. I wasn't witnessing grace in this church. And to be honest, she did not look lovely or worthy of my affection. The church did not look worthy of my affection in that time. I was very confused and dealing with a lot of pain because of this. But can I tell you something else? It doesn't matter what you or I have thought about her. It doesn't matter for a second what negative thoughts you or anyone else has shared about Christ one and only. And you really have no right to see her any less than how Christ does, and that is absolutely lovely. Truth himself has declared it's true that she's lovely. And it's not a matter of a difference of opinion between you and Jesus about how you see the church. For you to see her as anything less than lovely when truth himself has called her so makes you a liar 
It means you are lying about her, you are slandering her, you are shaming her in a way that she is not worthy of. She is worthy of your deepest affection, your deepest love. Because Jesus is absolutely, undoubtedly, unequivocally ravished by her. Because not only did he die for her, but he's returning for her exclusively. Jesus sees her as radiant, pristine, a sight to behold. She melts his heart and ignites his passion, and he does the same for her. She is the sole target of his affection and his movement. He longs for her and no one else, and when Christ comes, he is coming for her and her only. And you cannot deter him from that. You can't change his mind. In some weird universe, if like Jesus were like on The Bachelor or something like that, he would be walking into the mansion. Like it wouldn't take 10 weeks for him to find his wife. He would walk in and he would see the church and he would grab her by the hand and he'd pick her up and carry her around and say, Chris Harrison, season's over, I found her. Like that's my wife. Like that's how the church is. She is his one and only. She is it. She is the cosmic God of the universe's wife. The wedding's not come yet, but I promise you that he cannot wait. Jesus says that only the Father knows the day of uh, the Son's return. And uh, I like to th- imagine that every day Jesus just giddily asks the Father. He says, is today the day of my wedding? And, and the Father says, not yet, Son. But in Jesus' perfect humility and his submission to the Father, he says, not my will, but your will be done. But when that day comes and the Father gives the Son the green light, he is booking it down here for his bride. He absolutely loves her. Now Jesus is in mad love with his bride and he has decided in an absolute sense that she is lovely and fully worthy of his affection. But I think when you read Revelation 2 and 3, I think it just breaks his heart to think that not all of her is gonna show up on the wedding day. And see, men and women of God, this is our task, to serve Christ and ensure that his bride shows up complete, ready to go, makeup done, nails done, make sure she's awake, attentive, sober, ready to soak up every good moment of that day. We want her to be so ready that cameras and pictures are entirely unnecessary because every look, every glance, every soft word from Jesus to his bride is locked into her memory. She will be ready and she will be aware. The fact of the matter is we're here at Ozark, we're men and women training for Christian ministry. HLC, you're welcome. Uh, but also beyond that, and I think what kind of extends to that, is that you're, you're honing what I would consider the critical eye of the church. As ministers, as people who are faithful here at Ozark, I hope that you are being transformed by the spirit to look at the bride and say, yeah, this looks ready for the wedding. And no, this does not look ready for the wedding. Of course, this is not out of your own will. This is the spirit guiding you and teaching you. Like this, is, this, is, this bride does not look ready for the wedding. And I don't know what kind of communities you're gonna go into when you graduate, if you're gonna go work in a church or serve, but I hope that you're a part of a church. And some of you are gonna go into communities that look a lot like Laodicea, who look lukewarm, their faith is weak, they have no passion or zeal. Uh, Some of you are gonna go into churches like Sardis, where everyone's asleep, they have a reputation of being alive, but they're actually dead, and all we want is for them to wake up. I hope some of you will go into churches like Philadelphia and feel the endurance and the strength and the passion of the gospel in your communities, but I'm not so foolish to think that everyone's gonna end up in a community like that. No. But the fact of the matter is, we need a very critical eye when we observe the church. The most loving thing that we can do for her is keep her under a microscope. And, ask, and, when we, and when we can observe those things, those things that don't look ready for this wedding, well, it's not our job to necessarily fix it. Maybe it's just our job to proclaim the word of Christ. Maybe it's just our job to pray to the Spirit, Lord, would you wake these people up? Lord, would you please like, ignite their faith and their zeal and their passion for the gospel? Lord, would you keep these people endurant? Would you give them strength and, and make them faithful? 
No, we need to have a severely critical eye for any part that looks even remotely out of place and ask the Spirit to do his transformative work in these communities. We tend to the parts that don't seem quite ready for this wedding. Because she is lovely, she deserves a critical eye. Perhaps you're familiar with many of Jesus' miracles in the Gospels, and one very common one is the healing of lepers. Uh, leprosy, actually, in, in the Gospels or in the New Testament, is kind of a catch-all term for a lot of different skin diseases, but today, leprosy is actually a very specific disease. It's a bacteria called Mycobacterium leprae. Uh, some of the myths of its symptoms is like it's a melting disease, like your toes or your fingers just like fall off because you have leprosy, and that's not really accurate. Leprosy's primary symptoms today are uh, lesions, uh, and then wherever those lesions are, it actually causes... Uh, nerve damage, like severe nerve damage. And so basically what happens is wherever those, that nerve damage is, you can't feel anything. And so what actually happens is there are leper colonies in the world today. There's only about 200,000 cases of leprosy, but a lot of them are in these leper colonies in third world countries. And uh, people go to bed in less than ideal situations. And then as they're sleeping, uh, say, for example, like a rat or some sort of like infectious animal will come and like bite on people's feet or on their hands in the middle of the night and they don't have health care to treat it. And so basically the wound gets infected and then either like the, the you know, what the digit itself like gets infected infected and falls off itself, or you have to get it amputated. Not being able to feel is actually very detrimental to the well-being of the body. Not being able to observe and be attentive uh, to the damage being done to the body results in parts of the body falling off one way or the other. In the same way, a church unattended, uh, who is not under scrutiny and observation, is prone to falling off of the larger body. And that is the last thing Jesus wants. Jesus wants a full life at the wedding. He wants his entire bride there. She is far too valuable to become a leper. She requires our vigilant attention. Allow me to read this for you from Revelation 19. This is the day we're looking forward to that we want everyone to be at. Verse six, it says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. We have a very important save the date on our calendar. One that none of us, no matter where we're at, if you're in the States, if you're overseas, we're all going to the same wedding. It'll be the same day, we'll all be there. None of us are gonna wanna miss it. And because we have this future to look forward to, this wedding to look forward to, we tend to the bride here and we tend to her now so that she is ready for this wedding. So I'll say it again. Because she is lovely, she deserves a critical eye. 